Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point with me, Li Xin, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Regional cooperation or geopolitical competition? The ASEAN Summit will be held in Phnom Penh, Cambodia from November the 10th to the 13th. The summit will discuss regional issues affecting at least a quarter of the world's population. U.S. and Canadian leaders will also attend the summit. This is the first of a string of summits this month taking place in Asia to be followed by G20 and APAC. So what's to expect? How will China-ASEAN relations develop after the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China? And will China join the U.S.'s race for influence in the region? I'm pleased to be joined here in the studio by Jiang Jianping, Director of the Center for Regional Economy of the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and from Phnom Penh by Vanarit Chan, President of the Asian Vision Institute. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. Mr. Chan in Cambodia, let me go to you first. Tell us what's on the agenda for this meeting this time. What are the key issues to be discussed and, to be discussed and how special are the meetings of uh, ASEAN this year? Thank you, Shin, for, for having me. There are many issues on the plates or on the table at this stage. But as you mentioned earlier, geopolitical competition and tension seems to uh, our schedule, uh, I think the summits uh, which take place uh, in Phnom Penh now uh, for the, the next few days. And uh, as a chair of ASEAN this year, we try to promote cooperation and togetherness. So under the theme, advancing uh, together, addressing challenges together, AACT, ASEAN uh, try to promote uh, internal unity and solidarity as well as the balance external relation and to bring all the dialogue partners of ASEAN to come together to find solutions. So, but, you know, that is our wish uh, to see more cooperation than competition uh, at, at the summits. But of course, uh, uh, some of the issues uh, that cannot be avoided, such as the, the tensions uh, uh, between uh, Russia and, and the US, for instance, over the uh, war in Ukraine and, and other uh, flashpoints, such as uh, uh, Myanmar political crisis and so on. So, so there's there are many things now. And but uh, Cambodia tried to push the agenda on uh, post uh, COVID uh, recovery. So that is our priority actually as a chair of ASEAN to push uh, this mm -hmm. uh, inclusive, uh, resilient and sustainable uh, recovery from the COVID nineteen. Yeah, from the Cambodian perspective, what is going to be the significance of these uh, ASEAN meetings, or what do you want this meeting to be remembered by? First, uh, we do our best to show that international cooperation prevails, a multilateral system prevails, so that we can work together to address international issue because. Since, since the end of the Cold War, this is a critical moment in our history that we need cooperation more than ever, mm. uh, international cooperation, because uh, the global issue becoming more complex, more consequential, and more trend boundary. So any issue in any place in the world will affect us all. So this is the time, this is the era for international cooperation and partnership, and this is the legacy this is the message that Cambodia is trying to send out to the world. Mr. Zhang here in the studio, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping said in his report to the 20th National Congress of the CPC that uh, acting 
on the principles of amity, sincerity, mutual benefit and inclusiveness, and the policy of uh, forging friendships and partnerships with its neighbors, China strives to enhance friendly ties, mutual trust and converging interests with its neighboring countries. What kind of signal uh, do you think uh, Mr. Xi or China is sending by this statement. Is it uh, different from the past stance? If so, how? I think that uh, this speech shows that from Chinese side, uh, China will uh, appreciate the role of ASEAN as uh, a very important uh, neighbor. Uh, in right now and in the future, I think that uh, the role played by ASEAN will be very critical uh, in uh, East Asia and the Asia Pacific region. Uh, of course, uh, between China and uh, ASEAN, we have long-term, you know, cooperation uh, foundations, uh, including you know history elements uh, and our you know uh, infrastructure connectivities uh, and international trade, international investment, uh, international finance financing cooperation. Uh, please attention. Uh, right now, China has uh, uh, 1.4 billion population, uh, the biggest developing country. And uh, ASEAN country, uh, uh, together, they have uh, 600 million population. Uh, together, this is the most dynamic and emerging market in the world. Meanwhile, due to China, already entered you know, Asian society. However, in uh, Asia countries, uh, they can still enjoy, you know, demographic dividend uh, right now. And Meaning the, the population is yeah. still very young. Right. So this is a very, very good foundation for two parties to deepen their further cooperation in the future. Mm. I think that uh, in the future, actually, we can develop our, you know, systematic and comprehensive relationship in the future. Now, China has remained the largest trading partner of ASEAN for 13 consecutive years, and ASEAN has become China's largest trading partner for the second consecutive year. Quite a recent thing. And uh, ASEAN countries account for over 15% of China's total foreign trade. So, Mr. Zhang, staying with you, uh, what sectors are benefiting the most, and uh, how about people's livelihood? Actually, uh, this is a very good news. You know that actually in 2001, we started to, to negotiate a free trade agreement with other countries. Uh, actually, uh, we promoted bilateral trade uh, rapidly from you know just uh, 40 billion US dollars uh, after 10 years uh, uh, higher than uh, 400 billion US dollars. But last year, due to our upgrading uh, free trade agreement and uh, you know uh, com a systematic cooperation under framework of the Belt and Road Initiative, the trade volume between two sides actually climbing up on the new, you know, heights that is about uh, uh, higher than 870 billion US dollars last year. Mm -hmm. So this year, this trend is continuing. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, infrastructure connectivities, uh, uh, policy dialogue, uh, and, uh, you know, people-to-people -people, uh, connectivities, uh, including those investment uh, projects in other countries, uh, industrial park, you know, construction in other countries, uh, all of these elements uh, can play a comprehensive role for 
development. Uh, also, trade and uh, investment, they can promote each other. Especially this year, RCEP is in progress. That means right. yeah, we're talking can about enjoy trade yeah. creation effects. Yeah, as you mentioned, the first actually the first 10 months of this year, bilateral trade reached uh, hundreds of billions of US dollars, as Mr. Zhang just mentioned, and that is an increase of 16% year on year. And just now you talk about RCEP, which is the world's largest trade deal, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Mr. Chan in Phnom Penh, um, is the RCEP the main reason behind the jump in bilateral trade? Yes. Uh, Ten years ago, Cambodia as a child ASEAN uh, pushed forward this initiative of RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, and it took eight years to negotiate. And early this year, January, we start enforcing RCEP. This is a critical milestone uh, of a regional uh, economic integration. And this is the catalyst also for the post-pandemic uh, social economic recovery. Rather than disconnect or decouple, uh, our region choose to further integrate, further connect, and further uh, synergize all regional initiatives. So this is the way forward. We need to further deepen our regional economic integration. We need to promote inclusive, resilient supply chains because we are to so much interdependent and interconnected uh, on each other now. So I think trade is also a foundation for regional peace and stability. The more we interdependent on each other, uh, the less uh, kind of conflicts that may occur because we need to find solution because this is our common interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mr. Chang, staying with you, uh, we know that U.S. President Joe Biden will attend the ASEAN summit and uh, earlier this year in May, he promised to invest 150 million U.S. dollars on infrastructure, security, pandemic preparedness and other fields in ASEAN. Do you feel that America is under pressure to do more in the region? And uh, what do countries in the region feel about this issue? If, about, I mean, the potential raise that the United States is trying to engage China in the region in terms of influence and sway? The priority kind of national interest of all the member states of ASEAN is economic interest. And economic security is national security. So not only the US, but all dialogue partners of ASEAN need to have economic initiative uh, that can respond to the needs uh, of the ASEAN member states. So the US uh, need to uh, find ways to uh, strengthen its economic presence and engagement in this region which is relatively in decline compared with, for instance, China, because China, in terms of economic uh, presence and connectivity, supply chains, mm. much, again, much stronger kind of steam uh, in this region. Uh, so, so that uh, the U.S. need to do something uh, to economically compete uh, with China. Competition is good as, as long as it is stable and healthy. Uh, so uh, that is the message we keep sending to okay. both the U.S. and, and China. You compete, but don't confront, okay? <laughs> yep. You can compete, but don't confront. So. All right. Yeah, finally, a quick question to Mr. Zhang here in the studio. Some people in the West are seeing the Asia-Pacific region as a playground for great power competition. Uh, what's China's view? Actually, from Chinese side, uh, we welcome the third-party cooperation 
uh, with uh, both US, EU, and other developed countries uh, in Asia and in other developing countries, especially uh, on the platform of the Belt and Road Initiative. So in Asia region, I think that uh, if you look at the trade volume, uh, those Asia countries, uh, they try to trade volume with Chinese side uh, today already, you know, larger than that in the, uh, with the United States. Also, uh, economic ties with Chinese side uh, becomes stronger and stronger. Of course, due to global supply chain cooperation, uh, U.S. side also can play a very important role in the region. We hope that... But my, my question really is, does China see this as a race? Oh, yes. I think that uh, we hope that uh, this, this type of risk uh, could be you know, sustainable uh, and uh, uh, controllable. Uh, also, will benefit for regional economic okay. cooperation right. instead of destroy the peace and the development in the region. Thank you very much, Mr. Zhang Jinping, Director of the Center for Regional Economy at the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and uh, Vana Rit Chang, President of uh, Asian Vision Institute, joining us from Phnom Penh, Cambodia. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, how the U.S. has been tightening its grip on South Africa media through proxy funds and agencies. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Propaganda under disguise. According to a report published in August, the United States is penetrating, has been penetrating South African media through the National Endowment for Democracy and other organizations and foundations. The report said the project was an example of U.S. state-sponsored efforts to influence public opinion abroad in ways favorable to its own selfish interests. Who is behind the project? How long? had been such operations going on, and how has the project influenced public opinion in the region so far? I was joined by two authors of the report from Toronto, Ajit Singh, journalist and member of the international campaign No Code War, and Roscoe Palm, director of the Pan-African Institute for Socialism, joining us from Shanghai. Mr. Singh, let me go to you. The report that you published is uh, entitled How the United States Has Penetrated South African Media, in which you detail how the U.S. state with its private sector partners have captured and continue to capture influential South African media. You called this a U.S. imperial project. Who exactly are the main players here and what's their hidden agenda? That's a great question. Uh, the main player uh, at the heart of oh, the United States international influence operations is an organization called the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, this was an organization created in 1983 under the Reagan administration. And in the words of its founders, it was created to take over the public face of the U.S. Um, influence operations around the world from the CIA to do openly what the CIA used to do covertly. Um, and this is because uh, during the 60s and 70s, the reputation of the CIA and these its covert operations became tarnished. Um, and so the NED uh, on a yearly basis issues thousands of grants in over 100 countries around the world. Uh, between 2010 and 2020, uh, this past decade, it's issued over a billion dollars in grants. And um, a lot of these grants go to uh, media organizations, a range of civil society organizations, but what we focused on were its funding towards media organizations, particularly in South Africa, where 
it has been financing since 2020. One of the major South African newspapers, Mail and Guardian, uh, and has increasingly been working with private foundations, namely uh, Luminate, which is a private foundation headed by Pierre Omidyar, who founded the Intercept investigative journalism website, um, and Open Society Foundations, which is headed by George Soros. And so uh, this sort of public-private partnership is increasingly uh, playing a role in media development, uh, particularly in the Global South. Hmm. Roscoe, um, you claim in that report that this is a project in hidden, in plain sight. What do you mean? And what's the pattern of operation and scope in influencing public opinion? Well, um, the NED's operation um, is vast, and in, as Ajita said, it's been in operation since 1983. Um, for example, it, it, uh, in South Africa, um, it has um, funded many of the major publications as, as well as smaller projects. Uh, we have found at least 24 publications that have been funded by one or more of the major funders that regularly partner with the U.S. government. And this is a massive footprint in terms of influencing. Um, its uh, role is to increase the U.S. soft power in South Africa and beyond into Africa. So, um, for example, it has funded um, the local chapter of the Media Institute of Southern African Swaziland, the Institute of the Advance of Journalism in South Africa, and many other institutes. Uh, the goal of this is to um, is to uh, elevate a pro-U.S. and a pro-Western narrative that often comes at the cost of African narratives and African the African agenda for development. Ajit, uh, investigative journalism is often the target of such uh, operation. Why so? And what's missing in the picture while these media? Uh, ostensibly target corruption or malpractices by the authorities? So I think what, what makes investigative journalism so compelling from the standpoint of the United States and, and its partners is that investigative journalism is typically journalism which brings to light injustices, uh, corruption, uh, things which are hidden from the public and which cause a lot of outrage. And so being able to cultivate large uh, resources and capacity to do this kind of work, and particularly to do this kind of work in ways that are favorable to your geopolitical interests, can be very useful in two ways. One, promoting narratives which are favorable to your country, and two, to target domestic and international political actors around the world. And it would be one thing if it was uh, a press release from the State Department making X or Y claim, mm. when it's done through the guise of quote unquote independent media, where ordinary people have no awareness of the ties to the interest groups behind them, it creates uh, a lot of opacity and it, it makes it a lot more uh, palatable for the public to consume because they think they're getting it from an impartial source. There's also, as you mentioned, a myriad of organizations ostensibly for journalism training or for media development, cooperation, some at a global scale, some at a national level, regional level. And uh, uh, Roscoe, I mean, both of you call it an alphabet soup of acronyms. What function do these so-called media organizations serve? 
Well, as I said, they, they serve to push a narrative and then also to place people in key positions that sit on um, various within this influencing network. So uh, we've we found that there is, in fact, a revolving door of people who work for organizations that are funded by NED and other organizations within this influence uh, in network of influence and U.S. State Department organizations. So uh, at the time of writing the piece, we said that there were two people, two um, uh, editors who went on to work, uh, former editors in chief of the Mail and Guardian, who've gone to work for Western um, government supported organizations. We've since found two more and at least 15 people who passed through the fellowship program um, run by Amon Bungani, the investigative journalist unit, have been directly tied to U.S. government organizations and programs. So uh, this is building, um, it, it's building an influence network, it's building people that they can then place in institutions uh, around the world to then cultivate um, further um, influence and to curate the narratives, mm -hmm. in, especially in this particular moment in history, when the West and the U.S. is just decoupling from the rest of the world. So the main question here, Ajit, uh, is uh, how long, as you mentioned, the uh, NED was founded in 1983, so the operation has been ongoing for a long time, but how long specifically have the operations been going on in South Africa, to your knowledge, to your investigation? I'm uh, directing this question to Ajit. And how powerful has the project proven to be in shaping local public opinion? Well, we uncovered that uh, South Africa, uh, shortly after the NED was founded in 1983, uh, in, the, in its first and second year of, of operation, uh, it was active in financing media in South Africa. At the time, in their own words, according to US internal documents, uh, they sought to, quote, counter strong Marxist campaigns in South Africa. It's important to note that this is South Africa at the time of apartheid. And the United States wasn't primarily interested in, in funding and financing media to, to promote an anti-apartheid message, but they were interested in promoting an anti-Marxist message. This is at the time of the Cold War. And uh, it's illustrative of how the United States, the criteria for what it finances isn't uh, unfortunately uh, necessarily human rights and democracy, but it's geopolitical interests. And today it appears that it's ratcheting up and returning to these sort of Cold War tactics as global tensions rise with China and Russia uh, to uh, be able to promote certain narratives and shape public opinion. I think we're, we're not yet able to say what impact it's going to have. It's unfolding at the moment mm. and it's, it's going to continue to unfold as evidenced by the billions of dollars they're putting into their international media initiatives, as I'd outlined uh, previously. Mm -hmm. um, Roscoe, now for the ordinary people who are watching the news, who are reading the newspapers, what could they do? I mean, what are, for instance, some of the common characteristics among these media that have been captured? And how could ordinary consumers tell whether they're being fed uh, with a secret agenda? You know, here we have to rely on um, the common sense and uh, the intuition of ordinary people who read the media. And um, th what we need to do actually is to build some, uh, is, is to counter the propaganda with facts. 
for example, one of the uh, one of the constant themes in these publications is the demonization of state actors that um, uh, don't necessarily fit into the U.S. and uh, the global North's idea of hegemony. So one of the things we constantly hear about in Africa is that uh, China um, in, is uh, it involves in debt trapping um, certain states in Africa, when in fact that's just simply not true. Uh, China over the last 20 years has cancelled more than three and a half billion U.S. dollars in debt and refinanced 15 billion dollars um, across uh, across Africa. Uh, right at the moment, the IMF is negotiating with uh, Ghana for a three billion um, dollar credit uh, facility. Um, and on the table um, is, as usual with these international financial institutions, uh, vital social programs and infrastructure projects, uh, education. So in terms of Africa, what we're not looking for is um, uh, is uh, um, and more debt traps. We want partnerships. So we have to understand that, um, that the, the explicit demonization of particular state actors is done so with the express purpose of um, drawing an iron curtain down once again mm. and bringing on the new Cold War, which is what the global North knows how to do. Mm. It's taking us to the brink and we have to find um, other voices and other channels to counter this um, explicitly harmful narrative of the global North. Finally, Ajit, uh, the NED claims that it's dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. For those who genuinely believe in democracy, how could you convince them that the NED is actually doing the right opposite across the world? Well, it comes down to this. Democracy can't be imposed from outside by foreign countries. Uh, it's, for, it's fostered by the people of a given nation. Um, and we've seen time and time again uh, that the United States, through entities like the NED, uh, repeatedly will finance violent anti-democratic forces around the world. Unfortunately, the criteria for their funding is not whether a group is particularly democratic or humanitarian, it's whether it serves their geopolitical interests in a particular country. Uh, they fund groups who oppose political forces that they don't like, uh, and those groups can exist on a spectrum of uh, across the political spectrum, unfortunately. Uh, and so if we just look country after country, uh, where the NED uh, and the United States uh, financial footprint goes, uh, the track record just isn't consistent with these so-called uh, okay. democratic ideals. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Ajit Singh, journalist with uh, Grey Zone, and uh, Roscoe Palm, director of the Pan-African Institute for Socialism, joining us from Toronto and Shanghai, respectively. And that's it for this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.